brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw. And today we're going to talk about the management of patients with respiratory disease. This will be the first in a two-part series on this topic, so make sure you listen to this episode and the one to follow in order so that you get all of the information. Now, if you haven't listened to episodes four and five, I recommend listening to those first as they deal with the physiology and pathophysiology of the different respiratory diseases. Today, in this first part and in the subsequent part to be posted at a later time, we will talk about the management of patients who have these diseases. Don't forget to check out our new website, ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com. And you can leave comments on the various episodes there. You can also email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C at A-C-C-R-A-C.com. And you can also use the email address, ACRACpodcast at gmail.com. I'm proud to announce that the hearing only out of one earphone dilemma has been resolved. If you listen to episode six, the one before this, it should have played for you out of both ears of your iTunes earbuds. And hopefully we won't have that problem again. If for any reason you do find yourself only getting audio out of one of your two earphones, first check your earphones. And if they seem to be working, then please let me know in case the problem recurs. I would encourage you to sign up for the ACRAC email list you can go to ACRAC.com and click on the link there so that I can keep you up to date whenever I post a new episode or if there's any other important news that I would like to get out to you. I have continued reading and continue to be fascinated by Martin Blazer's book, Missing Microbes, that I mentioned in the prior episode. He is mainly talking about the various effects on human physiology and growth and health that he hypothesizes have come from the fact that we have been drastically changing the makeup of the microbes in our body and especially in our gastrointestinal tract with the increase in the use of antibiotics since the 1940s and 50s when they were first invented and especially into the 60s and 70s when they became incredibly prevalent. For example, he talks about how for a long time farmers have used, at least in this country, have used low-dose antibiotics in their cattle and other animals. Now, I knew this, but I have to say I just figured it was to try to prevent infection, get the animals to live longer, and therefore increase profits. It turns out that's not the reason. The reason that farmers in the United States, and I say United States because it's been banned in Europe, but the reason that farmers in the United States give low-dose antibiotics to their animals is that it turns out the animals grow bigger and fatter when they're given these low-dose antibiotics. 
Isn't that interesting? It turns out that Blazer's lab has done these experiments on sterile mice, where they'll take mice that are essentially born and raised in a bubble, so they never get colonized. They have no microbes in their guts at all. And then they'll divide them into two groups, introduce one with microbes from animals that have been raised on low-dose antibiotics and another with animals that have not. And you see that the animals that get the microbes from the animals that have had low-dose antibiotics, they grow bigger and fatter, and the others don't. So how does this apply to humans? Well, it turns out that by the age of 10, the average kid in this country has been exposed to around eight courses of antibiotics. And it, when they've studied this in the lab, they found that those intermittent doses of full-strength antibiotics produce similar effects to the low-dose continuous antibiotics that the animals are getting. In other words, we're doing to our children the same thing that farmers are doing to their animals. Our children are growing maybe fatter. Maybe the obesity epidemic is partly due to the fact that they're being exposed to these antibiotics. The other scary thing is that these antibiotics that are used on the animals still turn up in the food on our shelves. There's actually allowable limits of antibiotics that can be measured in things like milk and meat. And it doesn't apply only to non-organic food. It turns out that there are antibiotics that are sprayed even on organic fruit as a way to ward off some infections that can affect the fruit. Anyway, I highly encourage you to check out this book, Missing Microbes, How the Overuse of Antibiotics is Fueling Our Modern Plagues by Martin J. Blazer. All right, let's get started with our main topic for today, which is the management of the patient with respiratory disease. In this and the next episode, we're going to cover the following things. We'll talk about the initial evaluation of the patient. We'll talk about how to prepare preoperatively for surgery with the patient, whether it's non-thoracic surgery or whether it's actual surgery on the lung. We'll talk about the intraoperative management of these patients, the post-op management. We'll talk about special issues that apply only to thoracic surgery, specifically when you're using one lung ventilation. And then we'll talk about briefly some issues that apply to a total pneumonectomy that are unique to that surgery. All right, let's start with the initial evaluation, the history and physical. So when you're evaluating a patient with chronic respiratory disease, the most important thing is to figure out what is their baseline and are they at their baseline or are they not? This is a classic oral board situation where they'll give you a patient with chronic respiratory disease and they'll tell you the patient has wheezing or they'll tell you the patient has had some sputum. They've been coughing up sputum. And they'll ask you if you want to delay the case. Well, the question is, first... Is this their norm? Is this what they do? Is this patient always coughing up sputum? Maybe they're coughing up less sputum than they usually cough up. Maybe they always have wheezes. You're certainly not going to delay a case because the patient is at their baseline. So you have to know that. If they're not at their baseline, then you have to decide, are there symptoms concerning for an active infection or an active exacerbation of their underlying disease? And things to look for that are associated with this are things like fever, significantly increased sputum production from baseline, though the color of the sputum is not significant and has never been shown to be. If they have serious tachypnea, again, that is different from their baseline, new wheezing or crackles on exam. And these are the things to, to keep in mind. Now, on oral boards, again, it's going to happen that they're going to give you 
a patient with some wheezing or some sputum, and even if they tell you that it's new, it's probably going to be just slightly worse than usual. And so you're going to have to make the decision. If it's a purely elective case, if it's a elective hernia repair or a lipoma removal, then maybe it makes sense if you think that this is truly an exacerbation, if this is definitely worse than baseline, to postpone the case. And you actually have to postpone for several weeks, not just a few days, in order for lung function to recover. And if it's a COPD exacerbation, then the patient needs antibiotics, potentially steroids, so it's a longer course that they need in order to recover. Another common oral board situation is a kid who's having an exacerbation, let's say, of their asthma and or who's having a, an upper respiratory infection, uh, which they have all the time. And again, now you have to decide if this kid gets an upper respiratory infection every two weeks, every three weeks, then you're never going to be able to send them away for four to six weeks to recover and then have them come back. So you really have to judge how significant is this exacerbation. On oral boards, what you want to do is a detailed history and physical, get as much information as you can, and then talk with a surgeon, talk with a family, decide how urgent this surgery is, and go from there. If you decide to proceed, at least with your initial evaluation, you want to get a variety of tests. So you'll get basic labs. You'll want to get a baseline room air sat, of course, as you'll get the rest of the vitals as well. But this is significant because you want to know where this patient lives. Where, what is their room air sat? If their room air sat is 90% and they're in the PACU setting 92%, you don't want everyone in a panic. You are probably not going to get pulmonary function tests unless they're having thoracic surgery. And we'll talk more about this in a minute. An ABG may be helpful in patients with severe disease because it gives you a baseline to know if they're a retainer of carbon dioxide, what their normal acid-base status is, and uh, PO2 to correlate along with their SAT, which can be nice to have preoperatively. A lot of these patients will be on high-dose beta agonists, and they may also be on steroids, and these medications can affect their electrolytes and their glucose and, of course, their white count as well. So you may have a patient who's on a course of steroids who has a high white count. It's probably not from an infection. It's probably from the steroids, or at least it may well be. How about a chest X-ray? Should we get a chest X-ray in a patient with chronic lung disease going in for surgery? Probably not. There's not a whole lot that a chest X-ray is going to do to change our management outside of thoracic surgery. So if it's just non-thoracic surgery, the patient's coming in, if they have known chronic lung disease... If they're not having an exacerbation, they don't have an active infection, then getting a chest X-ray is probably not warranted. Let's talk about optimizing patients preoperatively, and we'll highlight a few things in terms of smoking cessation and assessing cardiac risk, and then we'll come back and revisit, as I said we would, the pulmonary function testing for thoracic surgery itself. So for preoperative optimization, you want to deal with smoking and smoking cessation, but I'll come back to that in a minute. You want to do assessment of cardiac risk, and this is really important. A lot of times, for example, on oral boards or in a stem on written boards, they will give you that a patient either has COPD or is a long-term smoker. If they tell you they have a 60-pack year smoking history, even if they don't carry the diagnosis of COPD, you want to read that as COPD. Assume the patient has COPD, and also assume the patient has coronary artery disease unless you're told otherwise. So a patient with a long smoking history or a patient with COPD has coronary artery disease unless proved otherwise or unless you're specifically told otherwise. You're given a cath from last week that says that they have clean coronaries. 
and we'll talk in a minute more about how to assess cardiac risk. Most of these patients will be on inhalers, and you definitely want to have them continue their inhalers, take them in the morning, bring them to pre-op, and actually have them use their inhalers immediately before going back to surgery. If they don't bring theirs, at least albuterol, you can give them. Some of these patients will be on steroids, and so you're going to want to think about stress dose steroids. The general rule of thumb is that if a patient is on more, 20 or more milligrams of prednisone or the equivalent per day, then they need stress dose steroids. But in reality, lower doses than that can impair your steroid production, and higher doses may not. It also depends on the actual size of the surgery, the stress of the surgery, but you want to think about it. On boards, you definitely want to keep this in mind. One of my oral board questions specifically was about a kid who was on steroids for chronic asthma and then came in as a trauma and was hypotensive. So you want to keep this in mind. You sort of have two strategies. One is give the steroids up front, and certainly on boards, the right answer is going to be anyone on 20 or more milligrams of prednisone daily, just give the stress dose steroids. In reality, if you want to wait, have them ready, and if you have some unexplained hypotension, give the steroids, and if you don't, then don't give them. That's fine, too. You can certainly, you should certainly have the patient take their normal dose of steroid preoperatively. And if they don't, if they normally take 20 of prednisone in the morning or 10 or any amount, you should certainly either give it to them in pre-op or give them the IV equivalent once they are anesthetized. In terms of preoperative sedation, it's a fine balancing act. So patients who are very anxious with severe obstructive pulmonary disease can actually start breath stacking, and that can be problematic. They can end up hyperinflating themselves. But on the flip side, if you treat their anxiety too aggressively, then they can get oversedated and hypercarbic and acidotic. So you want to be very careful. On oral boards, remember, better to be conservative. So if you are given a patient who's very stressed and anxious, first, always first go talk to the patient. Never say, okay, I'd give them Versed or I'd give them fentanyl. The first thing to do is go talk to the patient, try to calm them down by holding their hand, metaphorically at least, as you talk them through what's going to happen and why they shouldn't be too worried, and see if you can get their anxiety under control that way. If you can't, and they're really hyperventilating and incredibly anxious, that's when you might think about very low doses of something like Versed that you would want to specifically say you would not combine with fentanyl, because the two are synergistic in their ability to cause respiratory depression. And remember, if you do decide to give it, make sure you specifically point out that you will have the patient on continuous monitoring. Something that comes up from time to time on written boards, surprisingly, is theophylline. They may, on oral boards too, they may ask you, the patient's on theophylline, should they stop it or not? And the answer is theophylline should be stopped. It should be discontinued the day before surgery. And the reason for this is that Theophylline has a very narrow therapeutic window, and if it gets above that at all, which it can easily do based on some of the anesthetic medications that we give, they can increase theophylline levels, and if it gets above that narrow therapeutic window, you can have serious complications like arrhythmias and neurotoxicity. So you want theophylline stopped the day before if your patients are on it. 
All right, let's talk about smoking cessation. This is a board favorite. So what are the consequences of stopping smoking? You will hear, and it is not true, that it is better for patients to keep smoking than to stop smoking in the immediate perioperative period. And again, the answer is that that is not true. Patients, if they're willing to, should stop smoking whenever they can. The earlier, the better, absolutely. If they can stop eight weeks, 12 weeks, a year before surgery, that's fantastic. But if they're willing to stop and it's just the day before or two days before, they should still stop. So what happens when you stop smoking? So in the first one to two days, 24 to 48 hours, you, you will get reduced carboxyhemoglobin levels and therefore improved oxygenation to tissues. You will begin to see a small increase in ciliary function, though they're still fairly impaired. And you will get increased sputum production and increased reactivity of the airways. This is the source of the saying or the belief that patients should not stop right before surgery because of the increased sputum and the increased reactivity of the airways. But again, that is balanced out by the improved oxygenation and it hasn't been shown to increase complications. So it's still beneficial for patients to quit smoking, even if it's just a day or two before. Then one to four weeks out, you start to get more recovery of ciliary function, though still not completely recovered. You get a reduction in sputum volume and decreased reactivity of the airway. So you can see that if you can get a patient to stop two, three, four weeks out, that's even better and you get more benefits. And then four to 12 weeks out, especially in the eight to 12 week window, you start to see reduced inflammation and there's a clear morbidity and mortality benefit to stopping this far out. Before eight weeks, it's not clear. It's certainly not worse, but there's not clear data that it's better. After eight weeks, definite mortality benefit. You get improved wound healing and now full recovery of ciliary function. So again, the recommendation is have your patients quit as far in advance as possible, but quitting anytime is still better than not quitting at all. And I will say that I still tell all my patients, I see them in pre-op, and I'll, if I see on the pre-op form that they are a current smoker, I'll ask. And then if they admit that they are, I'll say to them, look, I know you've heard this a million times, but I'm just going to tell you, you're having surgery. We're going to take really good care of you. We're going to keep you safe through the surgery. But even so, the best thing, more than this surgery, more than anything else, the best and most important thing you can do for your health is to stop smoking. And I don't harp on it. I just tell them that. And there's actually some studies that have shown that if doctors say that to patients, it actually increases the percentage of patients who will quit. So I would recommend that you start working that into the advice you give patients, not in a condescending way, just in a friendly way. Say it one time. Don't, don't sit there waiting for them to say, okay, okay, I'll quit. Just let them know. It actually comes off as caring, and I think patients appreciate it even if they don't plan to quit. All right, let's talk about assessing cardiac risk. So why are we worried about this? Why is there any specific topic on assessing cardiac risk in patients with pulmonary disease? The reason is because patients with significant lung disease are at risk for cardiac complications and cardiac disease. Lung disease is a risk factor for arrhythmias. And the most significant one that you should know that is associated with COPD is multifocal atrial tachycardia, or MAT. I'll talk about that more in a second. The other things that lung disease is a risk factor for are pulmonary hypertension, coronary artery disease, and congestive heart failure. 
So any patient having non-cardiac surgery should be assessed for their risk of major adverse cardiac events, known as MACE, M-A-C-E. And if you look at the slides, which I'll post along with this episode, there is an algorithm that will take you through how exactly to assess patients for uh, cardiac risk. I'll talk about it here, but if you want to see it, uh, the algorithm is in a slide on the website com. Now, multifocal atrial tachycardia, you may get an EKG strip and be asked what this is. Maybe they'll give you a history of a patient with COPD or a history of a smoker. And what it is, the criteria for diagnosing MAT are that you have to have an atrial rate above 100, obviously, because it's a tachycardia. And then you have to have at least three different non-sinus P waves in the same lead. And so you will see P waves that look different. They may be in dif- uh, deflected in a different direction, different size, different morphology, whatever it may be. But having three different P wave morphologies and the tachycardia, especially in a patient with lung disease, makes your presumptive diagnosis of multifocal atrial tachycardia. All right, let's go through the algorithm for assessment of cardiac risk prior to surgery. If it's an emergency, a trauma, you're obviously going to go straight to the operating room. There's not much you can do. So let's assume not an emergency. First, your question is, is this patient having an acute coronary syndrome? If they are actively having an MI or unstable angina, then you're going to have to consider taking them to the cath lab before surgery. Let's talk about the bulk of patients, which are ones who are not having an active coronary syndrome. So what you want to do is estimate their risk of MACE, which again is major adverse cardiac events. And you're going to do this based on surgical cardiac risk calculators that are available online. But the important thing to know for your boards is that it doesn't matter. They're certainly not going to ask you to make that calculation on your boards. What you need to know is that if they come out low risk, then it doesn't matter. There's nothing that you need to do. You just go to surgery. And if they come out high risk, then your question is, what is their exercise capacity? What's their functional capacity? And what you want to know really is, do they have greater than four METs of exercise capacity? And we usually define four METs as being able to go up two or three flights of stairs without stopping. So if a patient can do that, then they have more than four METs and it's If they have more than 10 METs, it's a class 2A. If they have just between 4 and 10, it's a class 2B recommendation to do no further testing and go straight to surgery. So the only patients who need more workup are patients who have an elevated risk based on a risk calculator and have less than 4 METs or an unknown functional capacity. So commonly on boards, you'll be given a patient with bad knees so they can't exercise. So you have no idea if they'd be able to go up a couple flights of steps. So then the question is, what are we going to do for further testing? And the first question is, will further testing affect our decision or our care? If the answer is no, but we have to go to do this surgery anyway, regardless of what might come up on testing, then we're going to have to go ahead, if it's an important enough surgery, and go to surgery. And knowing that we're going to have to treat this patient as if they have active cardiac disease. If it would affect our testing, that's when you would get a stress test. And if the stress test is abnormal, you would send the patient for a cath. If it's normal, then you'd go ahead and proceed with surgery. 
So to summarize, the most important thing is to remember that you need to know their exercise tolerance, their functional capacity. That's the biggest factor that you need to know. If someone's got good functional capacity, then they don't need a stress test. And almost every oral board stem in one point or another, they're going to ask you if you want a stress test or a stress echo or a cath, and you have to first go through this algorithm, think through it, make sure you know their exercise tolerance, and make your decision based on that. All right, now let's come back to pulmonary function testing for lung resection surgery. So now we're not talking about patients with chronic lung disease having non-thoracic surgery. We're talking about patients who are having surgery on their lungs because of their lung disease. So a little board-esque question. Which of the following are the most important two factors on PFTs for predicting success and survival in lung resection surgery? Is it A, FEV1 and DLCO, B, FVC and total lung capacity, C, FEV1 over FVC and DLCO, or D, predicted post-op DLCO and predicted post-op total lung capacity? Hopefully you said A, FEV1 and DLCO. These are the two most important things to get on your PFTs in terms of preoperative planning for lung resection surgery. Preop FEV1 and DLCO, if they're both greater than 80% predicted, are considered low risk. So even for a pneumonectomy, even to have an entire lung out, if your FEV1 and DLCO are greater than 80% predicted, then you're good to go. For anyone, and it's going to be a lot of these patients who don't have both an FEV1 and a DLCO greater than 80% predicted, then you have to calculate their predicted postoperative FEV1 and DLCO. Now, for lobectomies, the way to calculate predicted postop FEV1 or DLCO is to start with your preop FEV1 or DLCO and then multiply by 1 minus the segments to be removed over the total pre-op functional segments. So normally, there are about 10 segments in the right lung, or there are 10 segments in the right lung, and about 8 to 10 in the left lung, and so you have somewhere between 18 and 20 segments. So you take 1 minus, let's say someone's going to be having 4 segments out, then you take 1 minus 4 over 20, and then multiply that by your preoperative FEV1 or DLCO to get your predicted post-op number. This is pretty straightforward. Basically, what you're doing is saying, if I'm starting with 20 total lung segments and I'm taking out five, then my 15 remaining segments are going to give me a percentage of my pre-op function. For pneumonectomies, as opposed to just lobectomies, you can either use that same formula or you can get perfusion scanning. And then what you're going to do is take your preoperative, let's say FEV1, and multiply by 1 minus the percent of perfusion in the lung to be resected. And the reason for this is that if you just said, okay, we're taking out, let's say, the right lung, so we're going to say that's 10 segments, and we're going to multiply by a half. So if we started at 70, our predicted post-op would be half of that, which is 35. But, of course, the lung being removed may be completely diseased and not very functional. So you actually may be significantly underestimating your predicted post-op function. It might be much better than you think because if you, to push it to an extreme, if your left lung is the only functional lung you have, even though there's a right lung in your body, but it's not working at all, and you take out the right lung, you're still going to be in pretty good shape. So that's why the perfusion scanning can help for a total pneumonectomy.
Of course, you could do that for a lobectomy too, but usually you don't need to. I will include in the slides a breakdown of the algorithm for what to do with these numbers, but I'll talk through it here as well. So basically, if your predicted post-op FEV1 and DLCO are both greater than 60% predicted, then you're good. You can proceed to surgery. If at least one is less than 60%, but both are greater than 30%, then you need to do either the stair test or the shuttle walk test. And we'll talk about those in a second. If at least one is less than 30%, then you actually need to get a formal exercise stress test to measure your VO2 max, your O2 consumption. Now, stairs, the stair test is to have a patient walk upstairs and see basically how high they can go. And you want them to go more than 22 meters. And the shuttle walk test, you want them walking and it's a sort of back and forth shuttle walk and they need to be able to go greater than 400 meters. And if they can do either of those, it correlates with a VO2 max of greater than 15 mLs per kilo per minute. And that's a significant number, which we'll talk about in a second. So what is VO2 max? It is the maximal oxygen consumption. And this is the most important predictor of post-op course, of post-op prognosis after lung surgery. We use the stair test or the shuttle walk test just as correlates or surrogates for the VO2 max. The VO2 max is really what's telling us what we want to know. So if it's less, if the VO2 max is less than 10 mLs per kilo per minute, the patient is at extremely high risk. And in fact, such extremely high risk that you want to seriously consider avoiding surgery altogether. If it's greater than 20 mLs per kilo per minute, the patient can likely tolerate any amount of resection, including a complete pneumonectomy. If it's in between 10 to 20, then of course it's in between and you need to discuss and take into account the variety of other predictors, including your DLCO, your FEV1, how important the surgery is, what kind of quality of life the patient wants to have, et cetera. If it's greater than 15, so between 15 and 20 is pretty good. And that's why those uh, surrogates, the shuttle walk and the stair test, those numbers I gave you of 22 meters on the stairs or 400 meters on the shuttle walk correlate with greater than 15 mLs per kilo per minute of VO2 max, because that's a pretty good predictor. If you're greater than 20, you're set. If you're greater than 15, you're pretty good. If you're 10 to 15, you may be okay. If you're less than 10, you're almost definitely not okay. So what if a patient has poor predictors? Their FEV1, their DLCO are low. Their predicted post-op DLCO and FEV1 are low, so low that they don't seem like they can survive the surgery. Do they have any options? And it turns out that they do. There's a surgery called lung volume reduction surgery, or LVRS, and for someone with such bad emphysema that they may not survive traditional lobectomy, if they have the lobectomy and this lung volume reduction surgery, they actually may improve their lung function even from their baseline afterwards. And the reason for this is that by reducing the volume, remember in patients with COPD, their lungs are huge, they're hugely expanded, their diaphragm is compressed and far down and flat instead of nice and rounded. And so by getting rid of diseased lung, you can improve the function of the remaining good lung and improve diaphragmatic function. In fact, you can improve it so much that patients, as I said, can actually have even better function afterwards than they did before, even despite having a lobectomy.
All right, we're going to stop there for part one, and we'll come back, and next episode we'll talk about the intraoperative management, the post-op management, special issues for thoracic surgery itself, specifically one lung ventilation, and then some special issues for total pneumonectomy. Remember to visit our new website at acrac.com. You can comment there on any episode you'd like. You can also send emails to me at acrac at acrac.com or acracpodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to sign up for the mailing list by going to acrac.com and clicking on the link there. That's all for today. For the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thank you for listening. Thank you for all that you do out there. Remember, what you're doing every day is really important and valued.